Okay, so grab the outline that says re, uh, Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity Series in the uh, 12 and a half point size. And then in the approximately 14 point size in bold print it says Rediscovering. Then in brackets, Rethinking and Restoring, Rebuilding is Pattern. So hopefully you'll recall that this, uh, this is the introductory teaching to this series, which we reviewed for a couple weeks at the beginning of the semester. And there's two basic points in this. The first one in Roman number one there is uh, why uh, we, it would be our perspective that the world has been gradually turning the church upside down since approximately, in America, let's just speak in terms of America, uh, Christianity has been losing ground culturally since approximately the Great Awakening in the 1760s. And the, uh, the rate of that has increased over time. And so, obviously, we need to rethink some things if we take seriously that it's not uh, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy that the world get darker and darker, which, of course, uh, unfortunately, so many Christians believe that today. But that's a relatively modern idea that uh, has no basis in Scripture nor in church history until modern times. So then we looked at the whole concept of that there are patterns in the Bible. And so what we're trying to do in this series, if you flip over to the back of that same outline, Roman numeral 3, there are 15 biblical emphasis for rediscovery. That is things that we need to rethink, re-examine, reconsider from Scripture and think it through better. And we need to build the kind of church that we reconstruct, rebuild, remodel these things in the church. And so um, I kind of made a mistake of starting to review. And uh, you know what? The, try to review what we covered in two school, three school years, I think. Uh, was it two or three? I forget. I think three. I think we spent three school years on this series already. Um, it seems like that might be right. Maybe it was two. But in any case, it, you know, uh, we got too bogged down in trying to, to go through and review it. So we are going to do a series of handouts for anyone who wasn't here the first couple of years that would like to rethink the first few subjects, which were loving God, grace upon grace, the church leadership. Then last year we did restoring the comprehensive approach to the Word of God for the whole school year. Uh, we did about... 30 different teachings on issues related to that. So Deanna and I are going to get our putting together, uh, and uh, Stephen put together one of these, but we're putting together some handouts. So if you look at the one that says leadership scriptures, uh, that is one of two handouts you'll get uh, to do, deal with emphasis four. These are all scriptures that have to do with leadership. They came out to three pages, so on the back of the fourth page, uh, Grace Christian Fellowship has nine core values. We put the three core values that are more, most relevant to leadership. We listed them there. Uh, the Alliance Renewal Churches that is the uh, network of churches that we're a part of, uh, very different than a denomination, has a, a document called the Common Concerns. And we put uh, three of the paragraphs or the topics in, in that there because those are the things most relevant to the ideas of leadership. But if you want to study some things about biblical leadership, read all the scriptures on the first three. Uh, plus, you're going to get a summary 
uh, outline that had to do with uh, emphasis number four. Because, it, frankly, at the rate we're going, we'll end up spending the whole semester reviewing. So tonight we're going to jump right into uh, idea number six, the kingdom of God. And uh, you'll notice that it says perception, proclamation, demonstration, and embodiment. So let's talk about those words in the title a little bit. Perception, the Christian life is all about perception. The Bible uh, uses the, the, the metaphors of light and darkness and blind versus seen all through the Bible. And what God actually is trying to do in our lives as part of our, not only our salvation and redemption, our, our conversion, but as part of Christ's ongoing discipleship is he's trying to open up our perception so that we see more clearly. So Jesus said, for instance, in John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word then you are truly my disciples. So he's saying, if you don't abide in his word, you're a false disciple. And he says, if you abide in my word and you're truly my disciples, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You'll actually know that you know that you know the truth because the truth will, will give you what the Bible calls freedom. And what, who would define, who could define what the Bible calls freedom? Give me a biblical definition of freedom, Daniel Hayes. Okay. Freedom is to li live under his rule then? Yeah. Under, okay, Maureen? It's to be free from Satan's hold and sin's hold of your life and be under God's authority and under his authority. Okay, anyone else? Saw a hand up over this way. <coughs> hi, Sarah. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Hi. Good. You're, run you're running pretty well. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let, uh, let me expand on that. I think biblical freedom, of course, the, the, our sin nature in the world's definition of freedom is uh, the perception of being able to do whatever I want, how I want, when I want, why I want, wherever I want, right? Uh, however, the Bible calls that the worst kind of slavery. Because, in fact, you, what you want is becomes subject to, to the power of sin, the realities of demons and so forth, and, uh, and the world's values. Freedom is actually to be able to obey the law of God uh, from, from your inward desire and heart, empowered by the resurrection of Christ to become more Christ-like, because Christ as the perfect man was the ultimate human being, and freedom is to become more uh, integrated with who you were, God intended you to be in the first place to be restored to what you should have always been before sin uh, mucked it all up, so to speak. That's a really theological term, mucked it up. <laughs> sin mucks it up. That's uh, deep theology. Um, so most of us have, have lived there. Um, we know what mucked up means to be. All right, so... Um, So perception uh, has to do with vision, and uh, I would say that one of the, the things that we hope to adjust both in this Kingdom of God Emphasis 6 and especially when we get to Emphasis 15, Vision for Restoring All Things, is simply this. Most Christians have had their vision reduced 
in the so-called Bible Christianity to something like going to heaven or having the right uh, inward spiritual life. Right? Isn't that what most people... Most people think the goal of growing in Christ is uh, from your inner being to become more Christ-like, and it's more of a private individualistic affair. Right? But... The Bible talks a lot about the restoration of all things. One of the theme verses of this whole series that we've read over and over again, Isaiah 58, 12, is those from among you will restore the ancient ruins, right? And will be repairs of the breach and uh, re rebuild the streets in which to dwell and all that kind of stuff, right? So um, perception has to do a lot with what your expectations of what being a Christian means and what it and, and what the church is going to accomplish in 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 time and space reality. Most people, you know, I what I, I guess I'm trying to get at is I'm very leery of any view of Christianity that puts most of the positive redemptive things that God wants to accomplish somewhere after the second coming of Christ or after we die and go to heaven. The Bible's vision is, is very clearly that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the seas, and that the law of the Lord would go out from the people of God from Mount Zion into, into all the earth, and the nations would stream to him and so forth. And that's all. So, you know, the kingdom of God has to do with perception. Um, it has to do with proclamation. Today, if we think of witnessing or evangelism at all, we have kind of like a, a mentality like, I hope it wouldn't bother you very much if we told you a little bit about Jesus. <laughs> you know, but uh, in the Bible, you see people declaring the kingdom of God, declaring that Jesus is Lord, and he's going to ultimately judge everyone in all things. He's a fixed, uh, he, you know, God has fixed a day where he will judge the world through a man, Jesus Christ, and you are going to have to give an account. And, uh, the, you know, God is declaring and proclaiming a kingdom. And what got the early Christians in trouble, as we studied uh, Acts 17 when we talked about the effect of the early Christians of turning the world upside down, if you remember when they dragged Jason and Paul out from... Uh, in Athens, uh, for, or not in Athens, in, uh, I'm trying to remember what city they were in. I think they were in Ephesus, actually. I, well, anyway, when I, anyway, when they dragged them out in front of the city authorities, Acts 17, re remember what they were accused of? It says they were accused of turning the world upside down because they're declaring that there's another king, Jesus, instead of Caesar. Like in the Roman Empire, when you met someone on the on the uh, streets, you were required to say Kaiser Curios. That I would, if I saw Byron on the street, I'd say Kaiser Curios, and he would say Kaiser Curios, which is Caesar is, is king. And the Christians couldn't say that. They believed there was another king, Jesus. And they were literally within a generation upsetting the entire Roman Empire. I don't think anyone's getting too upset about what the Christians are accomplishing in our culture. <laughs> right? So proclamation, demonstration. 
uh, hopefully we're going to see that, you know, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom has come upon you. The kingdom needs to be demonstrated by, by powerful uh, Holy Spirit realities that change lives and that shake kingdoms. You know, uh, we have some testimonies in our church of uh, people who one day they were like this, and they had encounters with the Spirit of God and with deliverance from demons or whatever, and the next day they were quite a different person. And that, needs, that should be much more common in the church. Most of us don't have the, the expectation that someone coming to Christ is going to be that powerful of a transformation. And, and it's just as valid if it happens slow as if it happens fast, but it does, re, it does always inevitably involve a complete transformation of life. So an embodiment has to do with living it out in a community of people. So we're going to uh, start in on the kingdom of God uh, this, uh, tonight, and, and that may take the rest of the school year. Probably will. Um, <laughs> uh, so this series may take 10 years, probably will. Um, and so tonight we're going to look at uh, Emphasis 6, Part A. Hopefully there will be done by the time we get to Emphasis 6Z, so I don't have to do a Z small 1, Z small 2, uh, which I've had to do at times. Um, we don't have enough Tuesdays left in the school year for that. So uh, Anyway, tonight we're going to look at the central and primary importance of the kingdom of God in Scripture. So um, let's start by, uh, we'll start with Josiah and, and, uh, and just go to my right. Let's read these theme verses. For time's sake tonight, if you don't have it ready in another translation, then read it off the page. In other words, you can, think, you can uh, you know, look ahead and uh, you know, know which one is going to be yours, and you can turn there and read it in a different translation. <laughs> just tell us what translation it is before you read it. Um, unless it uh, says otherwise, which only one verse does, it's from the New American Standard on the page. Uh, there's one I put in the ESV. And um, so uh, first theme verse, Josiah, is, uh, is Matthew 3, 2, 4, 4, and 17. And Stephen, get us, or, or you get Matthew 6, 10. Get us Matthew 3, 2, and Matthew 4, 17, which are actually spelled out later on the page, I think. Down at the yeah, they're both on the bottom of the page. I got Matthew. All right, go ahead, read those first. All right, three Matthew three two. Uh, this is John the Baptist speaking. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew four seventeen. This is Jesus saying, from the time that Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So Stephen uh, tipped. I was going to actually ask after he read the verses who was talking in those verses. See if you knew. So who was talking in Matthew 3, 2? No. John the Baptist. And he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Does anybody have a different translation on that? Uh, the three modern literal equivalents is New American Standard, English Standard Version, and uh, New King James all, all say at hand. But if you have an older translation, you might say is in your midst. It's, uh, I think that would probably be the King James. Does anybody have a, a, another transla a translation to read something different? 
the kingdom of God is in your midst or among you. Anyone? Nobody has that? Has come near. Several older translations has. Uh, in fact, I was looking at the Wycliffe and Young's Literal, and it says "has come nigh." <laughs> Old English, nigh has come nigh. Nobody says "come, come nigh" anymore, right? <laughs> Probably not. Um, so, so let's think about this for a second. What is the essential message of? Uh, of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's the essential message? When, when, when does Jesus say that repent for the kingdom of God is at hand in, in Matthew 4, 17? What's the circumstance or the situation? Isn't he addressing the crowd like right before the Sermon on the Mount? It is before the Sermon on the Mount, not quite right before. This is when he was calling his disciples. Yeah, uh, and When? What did he just finish doing? He was baptized, and he did something else in between being baptized and that message. Yeah, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He faces the three temptations in the wilderness, which uh, are covered in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. Uh, Luke and Matthew switch uh, temptation number 2 and 3 as far as their order, but otherwise they're the same temptations, Right? So Jesus went, after the devil had finished every opportunity, every temptation, it says he departed from Jesus until looking for an opportune time, right? Until an opportune time. And Jesus begins his public ministry. That's what it is. That's the occasion. It's the, start, it's the first thing Jesus says when he goes public. Right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It it's, has come near. And what else does he start doing? He starts doing about three activities in the rest of Matthew 4. So one is he's proclaiming repentance and the, and the present reality of the kingdom, right? What else is he doing? John Luke? He's healing people and delivering them from, healing people and delivering them from demons. That's two of the three other things he's doing. What's the last one that he's doing? What? Go ahead, say it. You said it. He starts to make disciples. He starts to invite people to follow him and become fishers of men and all that kind of stuff. Right? And it specifically mentions Peter, Andrew, James, and John in Matthew 4, I believe. Um, Luke 5 gives us Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew in much more detail. All right, so that not that interesting? Now... On the day of Pentecost, when the church is born, and so the very first Christian speech, at the end of the speech, John in Acts 2.36, Peter says, uh, so God has made him, and the Greek means God has made it manifest or demonstrated that Christ is both Lord and Christ, right? That Jesus was both Lord and Christ. And he's basically made the case that your Messiah that you've been waiting for in the Hebrew, Messiah, Messiah, or in the Greek, Christos, Christ, uh, that you've been waiting for has come. And he was Jesus, and you killed him. And you've also been waiting for Emmanuel, God with us, and he came. You didn't expect it to be the same person, but it was the same person. Israel's popular expectations weren't that that was going to be the same person. 
but it was the same person, and he came, and your religious paradigms had blinded you so deeply you couldn't recognize him in your midst, and you guys killed him. Do you remember what the crowd's response was to that? That's in, in a, Peter concludes that in Acts 2.35, and then verse 36, the crowd says, you can turn there if you have to. You should know this, though. What is it? Yeah, they say, what, uh, what should we do? What must we do? And Peter says, say it again, Morgan. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. So essentially, the first message of Jesus, John the Baptist, Jesus, and Peter in the early church was repent. What does repentance mean? What are some things about you know about repentance? Just reviewing here a little bit. Means, yeah, the Greek word metanoia means to change your thinking or change your mind. In what, in what particular ways? From to. What from to what? From your own thinking to God's thinking. Yeah, from your own self-centered self-determination, your own lordship, your own thinking. Uh, what the, you know, like, what is postmodern culture about? It's about I think, I think, I feel, I feel. I want, I want. Right? Me, myself, and I. My, the, Trini the Holy Trinity of modernism. <laughs> Postmodernism. Me, myself, and I. <laughs> we could have a whole class on the, the, the postmodern trinity. Maybe not. Most people understand me, myself, and I pretty well. And what are you so you're changing from that sort of self-determination, but what are you changing to? Yeah, trust in the Lord with all your heart and all your ways acknowledge him. Don't lean on your own understanding. But you're, you're turning toward the seeking of God, the study of his word and his heart and his ways and, and uh, the, the knowing of him and the pleasing of God, right? That's what repentance is. Repentance, and that second part is just as important as the first part. It's one, it's one thing to turn away, but if you're not turning toward... You know, that uh, we have a lot of passivity that we need to overcome in our culture, in our time, right? And uh, we're particularly, most of us struggle with being pretty passive about our, our seeking of God, right? All right, so Matthew 6.10. Who's, Josiah, you're going to read that one? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, so where, what's, where, where's the context of Jesus saying that? Teaches his disciples how to pray, the Lord's Prayer. Right, it's called the Lord's Prayer. It's when the, the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray. That's one of the things he teaches them to pray, one of the principles. I don't know that it was so much a prayer that we're supposed to recite over and over, as, and I'm, again, I'm not against reciting it and memorizing it, as long as we go from there to meditate on what it's saying. So what is that line saying? Yeah. Most people that I've asked today, when I first start discipling people who've come, come out of various evangelical traditions, I'll ask them what they think the kingdom of heaven is. Almost all pe the people think it has to do with going to heaven. 
But that verse doesn't sound like it has to do with going to heaven, does it? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in the same manner as it's done in heaven, right? So the kingdom of God is actually something that has to do with heaven. So we might as well clear this up before, and then, uh, Sarah, you can read Matthew 12, 28. Um, why does Matthew use the kingdom of heaven most of the time versus uh, the other gospel writers using the phrase the kingdom of God? Some of you know this. Right, so explain that. Who doesn't say God? The Jewish Why? Because they can't give it in Right. So the second commandment, that you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, they felt like there's no way I can use God's name at all without using it in a less than worthy manner. Not a bad thought, really, if you think about it, right? And Matthew is primarily giving Jesus' covenant lawsuit against Israel to, to show the, the Israelites that judgment is about to come on J Jerusalem and Judea and that God is taking the kingdom from them and giving it to a nation producing the fruit of it, the church. And this is their last chance to repent. Right? So Matthew is trying, first and foremost, to reach a Jewish audience with a uh, very abrasive, caustic message, message that's uh, probably more abrasive than any of the prophets. All right, Sarah, read Matthew twelve twenty-eight. You're reading from Matthew. But if they cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, does anyone know Luke actually has a parallel passage? You know, does, without looking it up, does anyone know what Luke's is worded? Uh, the finger of God. The finger of God, right? So a sign that the kingdom has come is that there was a clash between the kingdoms wherever Jesus went. Remember how many times demons would cry out and say, I know who you are. What do I have to do with you if you come to torment us before the time? When was the last time somebody, you had that kind of reaction around someone? <laughs> I've actually experienced that a number of times. It's not that far out. Uh, so why don't uh, Chris read the next verse, Matthew uh, 13, 31 through 33. These are just some introductory passages. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So what what does that seem to be meaning? Does that mean like it's going to get darker and darker and darker and there's just going to be a few Christians hanging on the faithful remnant in the corner? And, and of course, our church is the faithful remnant. Every church has that idea that idea that it's going to get darker and darker. How How is it that they're the faithful little remnant? Every church that has that idea is always the ones that are the faithful little remnant. I don't know about you, but I haven't been that faithful of a remnant. <laughs> what is that saying? Yeah, it's going to grow until it affects the, the whole world. You know, think about it. Jesus, although he ministered to fifteen to 20,000 people on a couple occasions, 
the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, if, if, if what most commentators think that that's just counting the men, then there were probably 15 to 20,000 people in the audience. Yet, uh, how many people were in the upper room in Acts chapter 1? 120. What's that? I said not 5,000. <laughs> what that always amazes me is that at, this, at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, says that he appeared to 500 brethren at one time. So that probably either happened when he met, met them in Galilee or it happened on the Mount of Olives before he, the ascension. It ha had to happen at one of those two occasions probably. It uh, doesn't tell us. But uh, in any case, after appearing to 500 people, what happened to the 380 that still, still weren't impressed enough to do what he told them? That probably should be comforting to every pastor. <laughs> right? Yeah, so like only 120 people were, were impressed enough after Jesus. Like think about the miraculousness of his ministry. And yet uh, not that many people were actually willing to do what he said, which is the real issue of being a disciple, isn't it? All right, so let's move on. Matthew 21, 43. Who's next, Daniel? Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. Well, we'll study this, this particular passage in more detail uh, later in this series, or later in yeah, the kingdom of God series here. Uh, go on. Uh, we'll skip Stephen. He's already read one. Sam Chenpoon, give us Mark 1, 14 and 15. By the way, what does the word preaching mean? Proclaiming. Pro proclaiming. What'd you say? A speech that just tells about God. Yeah, a speech that tells about God, but it, a proclamation or preaching would be like a declaration. Again, it's not that, please, please, it wouldn't, wouldn't be too bothersome, would it? If I, you know, it's declaring. Uh, is it necessarily uh, in a in a church building at a revival or something? No. So I mean, obviously the apostles proclaimed in the synagogues, and then they proclaimed in marketplaces, right? I uh, had one of the most discouraging experiences I ever had. Uh, I won't say who the particular Christian group was. A very big and uh, important missionary group, and I had just read a guy's book about uh, about the effectiveness of open air preaching through the centuries, and uh, and he was speaking at a big church, and I went, had the chance to talk to him for a few minutes, and I said, "Is anybody doing that very effectively today?" And he goes, "Oh, that would never work today." And I, thought, I was like, "What? <laughs> wow!" <laughs> I said, "Maybe you should withdraw that book." What's that? <laughs> I had already read the book, his, his book on the subject. Oh, well. Uh, next verse, Byron. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, 
the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, or behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Right. By the way, which is also sometimes translated at hand or has come near. Uh, moving on, Macy, Acts 1, 1 through 3. All right, so um, who's Theophilus? Uh, actually, no one knows if that was a real person or not. It's uh, two Greek words, theos is God, philos, friend, friend of God. So it could be like a metaf metaphorical name, but it could, could have been actually someone he was actually writing to. Nobody actually knows that. Uh, verse, in verse 2, uh, the NIV says the Holy Spirit gave instructions. Remember, the NIV always waters it down. What does some of the other translations say there? NESB says what? Given orders. Orders instead of instructions. That's a little, which is a stronger word? Wouldn't you rather have your teacher give you instructions than orders? <laughs> How'd you like to have your, wouldn't you rather have your parents give you instructions rather than orders? What are some of the other word translations? What's ESV say there? What's NKJV say there? You got, in, you got King James or NJV? Or give us a revised standard. Um, it says commandments. commands, commandments. You're Christina, right? Yeah. Okay. I just have to remember. I know we've talked, but I forgot. Yeah, I, I wish we had time to go into some of the history of translations and the important role that our, the revised standard played uh, in church history. But anyway, commands. What else we got? What does it got? Uh, what exactly is the... Or in verse 2, the, the word for orders. Commands, instructions. Commands? Yeah. Okay. So the point is the Greek word is a much stronger word than instructions. <laughs> it wasn't some suggestions. It was, you know, like it's, it's not really the Great Commission, even though that's popular. It's really the, the Christ's last marching orders. Give that some thought sometime. All right, what's the next one? Uh, Acts 28, 30, and 31. Now that would be Jane. And I think it says, and unhindered. I just ran out of room, so I just left the last couple words. And without hindrance or something like that, I left the last couple words off because there wasn't enough. I didn't want to take up another line. So who are, who's it talking about when it says he, Jane? Does anybody know the context a little bit? It's Paul, and where is it at? It's at the very last two verses of the book of Acts. That's how the book of Acts ends. Paul is under arrest in Rome, and he's basically under house arrest, and his friends are allowed to come to him, and he's able to teach them the kingdom of God, and, and all these Jews are coming to him and saying, why were they so upset at you in Jerusalem, and da-da-da-da-da. And what does he talk about? Uh, does he talk about, like, 
how the chariot races are coming in the Coliseum and he, that he has money on candidate number seven on the third race. <laughs> oh, that's what we talk about. I'm sorry. <laughs> What's he talking about? The kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So the point is, you know, look at in particularly Acts 1 and, and Acts 28. Well, let, let's go through this. You know, John the Baptist, his message was repent, the kingdom of God's at hand. The first thing Jesus says is the kingdom of God is hand, at hand. Any study of the Gospels will show you that Jesus primarily talked about the kingdom of God. Then if you get into the book of Acts, it's the very last thing Jesus said before he went to heaven was he spent 40 days giving them convincing proofs of his resurrection, right? And talking to them about the kingdom of God. And what have we talked about over and over again about when, you're, when you're, your goal is to change the world and you're, and you're about to depart, what do you tend to talk about? Jonathan? Christine? The most important things, right? Whatever's most important. Of course, you got one shot left, right? You know, if you're in the World Series and, you, and Steven's pitching and I'm the pitching coach and I come out to the mound, I probably wouldn't be, and he's, you know, got two men on and, and he's in, in trouble, I probably wouldn't say, hey, you want to get pizza after the game? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, so it's interesting, you know, like what, we're, what I'm trying to show here is the entire New Testament makes it clear that the most important topic to all the key players was the kingdom of God. Does, that, does everybody see that just from these verses? Because these you have to get sort of the, what, think through what the context. This is John the Baptist's message in preparation for Christ. This is the beginning of Christ's message. This is the continual message of Christ. This is the message of Christ in the 40 days before his ascension. This is the message of the apostles starting at Pentecost. All the way through to this is how the book of Acts ends when, uh, you know, the great apostle Paul is, doesn't know how much time he has left on this earth and whether he's going to be released from this prison or not or if he's going to be executed or whatever, but he's, he's, going to, he's talking about the most important things, the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, I wanted to talk a little bit about a modern concept called meta-narratives, but I uh, ran out of space on the outline. So I'm just going to put this next question. Four contemporary answers to the question, what is the major theme of the Bible? So, um, Bethany, why don't you just read all four of those answers real quick? That's supposed to mean our Lord. That's a typo, not out Lord. <laughs> out Lord. <laughs> he, he's likely to throw me out, but I'm not going to throw him out. Yeah, so I, I think today, if you were to ask, uh, and really if you kind of peruse Christian books on Amazon or whatever, uh, these would be the answers you would get. 
right? Now, is the major theme of the Bible the story of redemption? Yeah, and I think that's a key answer right there. I actually would say that that uh, probably the majority of evangelicals would say that the major theme of the whole Bible is the story of God's unfolding redemption. I would say that's a subset. That's part of the message, a very important part. But a necessary step towards something bigger. Answer three, you would definitely get some people who say that the, the Bible is about, the, is about covenants. You know, they would, uh, there's lots of different names for the covenant that God had with Adam. It's called the, the creation covenant, the, the Adamic covenant, the covenant of the Garden of Eden, or whatever. Um, there's, of course, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, covenant you know with israel through moses all the way through to the covenant with david you know the new covenant and so forth the bible is the story of god's progressive covenants and that the covenant covenants is the major theme of the bible obviously a lot of people would say that the unveiling of jesus christ is the major theme of the bible is that true Certainly. Some people would say the kingdom of God. So here's what I would say. I would say that it, if you combine answers two, three, and four, you pretty much have a pretty good answer. <laughs> One answer. You could you know, make a sentence something like, uh, you know, the progressive revelation of, our, of the king of the kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the unfolding of his kingdom through God's covenant relationships with his people <laughs> or something like that. Kingdom and covenant and uh, the king of the kingdom are the kind of the central concepts of the whole Bible. And that would be a good time to take a little break. And uh, we're not, not. we are always talking about the 19th century and because it was a time when the church went a different direction on a lot of things. And one of the things that happened was what was called the modernist versus fundamentalist controversy. And the modernists embraced evolution and... Uh, higher criticism in an anti-supernatural world view and um, fundamentalism was really um, not not as scriptural of a response as most people think it is and so wow. uh, so <laughs> so got a favorable bounce off the front of the rim so uh, one of the things that what was part of that is fundamentalism began to emerge. Um, the idea of Sunday school was invented. And Sunday school had some good and some bad in it. And here's the good was the idea of having an extra hour on the Lord's Day to study the scriptures more diligently and so forth. One of the ideas was to break down the, the divide between professional clergy and the average layperson and use average laypeople. But instead of uh, training and equipping the lay people more, they actually began to water down the content of what they taught. And that in Sunday schools became Bible stories instead of serious biblical studies and serious bi biblical investigation and so forth. 
And so it really, it really was very similar to what's happened in the last 150 years in public education, where public education is a great idea, but it actually has now around 160 year history of lowering educational standards every decade. They get a little lower and a little lower and a little lower. And uh, that's really kind of what has happened in the church. Sunday school. Uh, so the, the answer would have been to break down the clergy-laity distinction by equipping the laity better. Does everyone hear that? And so, you know, one of the appeals I would have to you is to, if you're a member of Grace Christian Fellowship or Rock Christian Fellowship, think in terms of God making you a leader of being able to take a young Christian and walk them all the way through to maturity. You have to know a lot about a lot of, you know, about the Bible, uh, Christian counseling, theology, church history, all of that kind of stuff to do that. And so what we're trying to do at Grace Christian Fellowship is develop uh, a good seven, eight, nine, ten classes that, uh, that 50, 60, 100, 120 lay leaders have taken so that so that we have a, a whole culture of ongoing biblical studies and catechism where everybody buys into that where the average person sitting in the pews knows the bible better than in most churches what the pastors know not because we're in any competition it's just because the church is devastated in our day and age and it needs to be reformed and restored So, uh, Andy will probably say more about the class next week. Let's get let's uh, spend about twenty more minutes finishing today's lesson. We usually try to quit about eight thirty. So, let's see if we can't get some more done. Is that a warning to me? Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I've gone I've gone past till nine. Sometimes it depends on how much uh, how much the audience is with you still. <laughs> if they look like they're about to mutiny, then I get worried. <laughs> <laughs> if people are actually brandishing knives and and, and swords and talk, talking about let's throw this guy over someone's just casually building gallows in the back yeah <laughs> that's when I get worried when the gallows are being built or they're, when they're, someone's got a plank that they want me to walk all right, Roman numeral four on your outline for tonight. The primacy of the kingdom of God in the New Testament Pentateuchs, Gospel and Acts. So uh, we've covered this last year when we went through the Gospels, but one of the things that I believe is, is that I think that at least Matthew, Luke, and John saw themselves as writing a new Pentateuch. They understood that this was a new covenant and that what they were doing is that God was using them to be the Moses of, uh, you know, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. I also think the early church fathers who put the order of the scriptures together took that idea and made Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts the Pentateuch of the New Testament. Just like the, the Old Testament is founded on the five books of Moses and their historical accurate narrative, so... Our entire faith is built on the Gospels in the book of Acts and their historical accurate narrative. Does everyone get that? Like, there's, you cannot be a Christian 
without thoroughly studying those five books. They're the foundation. So, um, in terms of the subject of the kingdom of God, Matthew has over 50 references to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in his gospel. We already talked about how he used the phrase kingdom of heaven more than kingdom of God, although he did use the phrase kingdom of God a couple times. Uh, we read Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 4, 17. So who's the next reader? The Morgan, Matthew 6, 33. Uh, go ahead and read them from the page so that we can just go through these quicker. Matthew 6, 33. Yep. Okay, so notice that the on the page it says, but above all, pursue. That's the NET. And then seek first is the ESV. Um, Deanna, get Matthew 12, 25 ready, and we'll come back to you. Uh, um, Teresa, go down, down to Matthew 21, 43. All right, so the thing I want to tell you about that, uh, and then uh, um, Bob, get to Matthew 16, 18 through 19 ready. The kingdom reference there is, is crucial. It's climatic. It's critical, okay? Jesus is actually saying to, he tells the parable of the landowner who planted a vineyard and how they killed one servant, then another, and so forth. He's telling a parable against the leaders of Israel. And he's, it's part of the whole major theme of Matthew, God's covenant lawsuit against Jerusalem, Judea, and its leadership, and the fact that he's going to take the kingdom from them, destroy the temple, destroy the city, and he's building his own city called the church in the next generation and to prepare for that event and so forth. And uh, the kingdom reference here is very important. We'll be talking more about that. Uh, who's got Matthew 12, 25? Go ahead, Nina. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself is So we'll take uh, we'll talk about that more. Uh, if you've never studied Matthew 13, Matthew 13 has seven parables of the kingdom of God, two of which we read earlier, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. But it starts with the parable of what people call the sower and the seed, which I always say should be called the parable of the soil. So we'll be looking at some of that during this series. I'm just giving us some introduction tonight. Um, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, and then uh, you get the next one ready, John. Luke, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So again, just trying to show you that it's a central theme to talk about the kingdom all through Matthew. Matthew 8, 28, 18 through 20.
Now, the word kingdom is not in that reference, but all authority, all kingdoms have a king that has all the authority. So he's saying all authority, the, I'm the king of the kingdom, and therefore you're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations that in all kingdoms are types of nations. All right? All right, let's flip over to Mark. Christina, read Mark 9-1 at the top of the next page, would you? Or you can read it from the RSV, it's no problem, but we got to hurry. Logan, let's just keep going. I'm not going to comment too much on them so we can get most of these scriptures read before the end of the time. Or if he becomes a part of the modern Christian temperance. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Move it. Let's move on. Let's, uh, we, we'll let that one go. Uh, Luke 1. I will comment this much. Remember we talked about kingdom and covenant. They're inextricably intertwined themes. And God made a covenant with David that he would not lack his seed to be on the throne. And of course Solomon was the uh, fulfillment of that. But ultimately Jesus was the fulfillment. He is the king, of the a promised descendant of David. He is the son of David. He calls himself the son of David. Uh, so, and he is the one who is the... The true king of the, 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 in David's kingdom was a foreshadowing of Christ's kingdom. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Adam. Keep do the next one too, Adam. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So. Most people today think in terms of the kingdom of God is going to heaven, and there's a lot of idea about it being the second coming. What's the problem with that with this verse? Right, all those people are dead. <laughs> Unless they, they'd have to be really old by now. O older than Andy and me. Put together. Multiplied. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people think that I was there like, no, I wasn't. I'm not that old. All right, um, when the earth's crust was still cooling. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't there, even though my footprints and dinosaur footprints are... In, no, I'm just kidding. All right, uh, who's got the next one? Joshua? Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. I wish we had more time. I love that verse. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Because don't we have kind of the opposite view of God? Yeah. Part of our fallen nature is always struggling with how we see God. And, uh, you know, it's God's great pleasure, some translations say, to give you the kingdom. Uh, we already read Acts 1-3 and so forth, so let's skip down to John. Uh, John 18-36 on Vesh. Now that's a uh, 
a, a type of dynamic equivalence Bible called the Common English Bible, but I actually think it gets to the heart of the matter pretty well. Because, you know, when Jesus is before Pilate, when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not, uh, he's talking about where it derives its authority from. Uh, let's keep going. Paul. So we've covered all four Gospels just in the, so Jonathan, uh, give us a little bit of Paul here. We already quoted Acts 28, 30 through 31, the end of what Paul's doing at the end of the book of Acts. So give us Acts 4, 21 there. Uh, 14, 21. Right, right, that's what I meant to say. Through many tribulations, <laughs> after the kingdom of God. Uh, does the other Jonathan want to do, we got two Jonathans in a row. Do you want to do one? Go ahead and just do Colossians 1, 13. <laughs> That, that's the Josh, the Jonathan section over there. Yes. <laughs> you can't sit over there unless you're a Jonathan. It's all about who you know. Uh, the kingdom of God, uh, through many tribulations we must enter. Romans 14, 17, if you don't know, says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. All three uh, of those phrases are... are go back to the antecedent, the kingdom of God is. So the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, period. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy, period. Right? The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit, period. So wherever the Holy Spirit's presence is being made manifest, that's where the kingdom of God is being pushed out. That's why the whole uh, church's posture, you know, uh, Stephen in Acts 7 says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. That goes a long way to describing what's going on in the church today. And, uh, you know, we need to, you know, put the Holy Spirit in his proper role and function if the kingdom of God is going to be advanced. Um, I love 1 Corinthians 4.20. The kingdom of God is not consistent words, but in power. So that's obviously not heaven, is it? Uh, Austin, give us Colossians 1.13. We've already read that one. John. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. All right, so, so just so we know what that means, what's domain? It's a kingdom word, right? Same root word as kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. He, he rec rescued us from, from darkness ruling over us. How many people have gone far enough in your conversion into Christ and so forth that you can actually look back and realize that in many ways darkness was ruling over you? I don't care if you were a goody two-shoes. Really, were you progressing into the knowledge of God, into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, into the purpose of God for your life? Were the lights coming on daily, hourly? You know what I'm saying? Like, you were, before you came to, what he rescued you from is being chained by darkness. And he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. If there's anything that the kingdom of God is about, it's, it's about loving the beloved son ourselves.
this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It, God, it, God, when he brings you into his kingdom, begins to give you pleasure in loving the son. Well, let's keep, uh, Jeff, give us uh, those two verses by Peter. What's that? I can read the first one. Oh, go ahead. Get, give us both of them. Yourselves are being built up like living stones into a spiritual temple or house. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his mar- marvelous light. Now, notice the small caps... So in the new, every Bible has a way. You should always make sure that in your in whatever Bible you use, that you read all the introduction to the Bible, because every Bible has like a key. So some Bibles do do what I'm talking about with uh, italics, or oblique print, but the New American Standard uses what's called small caps whenever it's doing what. What is it? No. When it's quoting from the Old Testament, it uses small caps. If you read a New American Standard Bible, you should definitely know the answer to that question because you, you actually will see the small caps four, five, six, seven times every New Testament chapter. Now, that varies. Like when you get into, say, Romans 9, 10, 11, and 12, like every other line is small caps because Paul quotes from the Old Testament a lot. You know, all through, in fact, the whole book of Romans has probably around 100 quotes from the Old Testament in, somewhere in that. I never counted them, but Jonathan, you can maybe count them for us next week. But uh, let, us, let us know. But uh, so uh, Jeff is about to read you where that quote from 1 Peter 2 9 comes from. It comes from Exodus 19 5 and 6. Go ahead, Jeff. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, when it says a people for God's own possession and a holy nation and all that in 1 Peter 2, 9, this is an, a very important book because if you were with us last year when we studied a concept called dispensationalism, dispensationalism has uh, just about destroyed the, the impact of Christianity in America, and almost all evangelicals have embraced one form of it or another, and it basically teaches that the things that pertain to the people of God in the Old Testament do not pertain to the people of God in the New Testament and that Israel and the church are not, are not the same entity. But all the things that the Bible speaks to Israel apply to the church, the new Israel of God. And Peter, 1 Peter 2.9 is, is one of many clear verses that say that. God uses the exact same covenant language that he enters into covenant with Israel just before giving them the Ten Commandments. He uses it to pe- through Peter to the church in 1 Peter 2.9 because we are the new Israel of God. That's why these kind of messianic churches that say that there's, uh, 
you know, that there's two kinds of people of God in the earth are so dangerous because there isn't going to be some restoring of sacrifice and, and so forth or, or salvation by works or two people of God in the earth because all of that would deny the reason Christ came. All right, so um, I wish we had time for some of these other verses. Hopefully you all know those verses in Genesis that are listed there. One is, of course, the dominion mandate, and the other is the, the calling of Abraham and the blessing of Abraham, it's called. Um, we, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until my, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is quoted seven times in the New Testament. And it's referred to about a dozen times. Right? And is that the eschatology of today? No, it's not. He's, it's saying that the Lord is going to sit at, a, at the Father's right hand until all the enemies of God become a footstool for his feet. Who, are, who, is, who is the feet of the body of Christ, Bethany? Who is the feet of the Lord in the earth? The, yeah, we are the body of Christ, right? He's the head. Are we the head? <laughs> Some of us try to be the head. We get into trouble, right? <laughs> right? We're, you know, like we're supposed to do what the head tells us to do, right? In the natural, if your body doesn't do what your head tells you to do, you know, there was a time when I was 35 where I decided to quit playing basketball four times a week. I loved basketball. Sometimes I thought God was probably upset at me how much time I loved. I used to play full court basketball three and four times a week when I was supposed to be a pastor. But I really loved basketball. But uh, eventually, you know, it just hurt too much because <laughs> I had back problems and so forth, and it was just like it, it eventually became not worth it because my body couldn't do what my head told it to do anymore. I'd go to slam dunk and I'd catch the bottom of the net, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just in my dreams. Usually if John Luke gave me a boost, I could. <laughs> he'd, he'd go like this and I'd, I'd, I'd spring off his hands. No, come on. All right, anyway. Somebody read uh, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4 before we quit. Daniel Williams, you got it? Or Stephen, somebody. And then somebody give us Micah uh, chapter uh, 4. All right. Who's got Isaiah? Christina, go ahead. Give us Isaiah 2, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Everyone listen, these are very important verses. Now, when, um, Christina, when is that going to happen? 
the first your first line you read told us in the latter days so does that sound like the world's getting darker and darker and there's just going to be a little remnant cowering in the back of a church somewhere saying we're the only ones that got it right no. it, it's quite an opposite vision isn't it the mountain of the house of the Lord being established the chief of the mountains and all the nations come to it are the nations coming right now to the church and saying, uh, you know, right now, for instance, there's an idea called Keynesian economics that began to spread uh, around the 1930s. And every nation is, is uh, every civilized nation in the world, with the exception of a few communist nations like China, are, are doing what's called deficit spending. In other words, they're trying to stimulate their economy by spending money they don't have, and their debt is growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger right look at the national debt clock sometime just google national debt clock if you want to be right and there's actually what's being taught at Wright State University in the economics department is this this kind of stealing from the people and spending money you don't have is actually a good thing and don't worry about the future when that when they were asked well what what's going to happen in the future if you keep piling up the debts of all these nations bigger and bigger and bigger he said, don't worry, in the future we'll be dead. Our grandchildren will have to do with it. We're, in other words, we, like the guy who invented this idea, his name was Lord Maynard Keynes, he basically said, hey, I'm going to be dead by the time it all collapses. Now, all the nations of the world are living by this economic philosophy that is anti-scriptural. But do we, Christians even know that? We do it with a kind of Christianity called pietism where we just deal with little prayer meeting ideas but not anything to do with real ideas. Do you think the world is coming to us to say, how can we, for, how can we straighten out the economic mess the world is heading toward? But this, what this verse in Isaiah 2 says is the world will eventually have to come to us, and we better have the answers by then. We better understand biblical economics by then. I tried to get certain guys to read uh, some books on biblical economics this summer, and they said they were too hard. You, they're not too hard. We have to know this stuff. You know what? The average Christian today has the same amount of credit card debt and student loan debt and everything the Bible tells us not to do because like, the idea of actually doing the Bible isn't really caught on in the church. What happened at the recession to the nation of Greece in 2008? What's that? Yeah, they couldn't pay their debts and so forth, and, and uh, it, it threatened to be like the first domino of a, house, a bunch of dominoes coming down, and, and, and eventually the other nations were able to prop it up. But eventually there's going to come an, a, an economic downturn where the nations can't prop them up because they're, you know what? Uh, you know, China's one of the few nations that's not living based on these principles of debt, but eventually there's going to be a day of reckoning for this kind of stuff is all I'm saying. And Christians need to deal with real issues and understand real issues from Christian perspectives, biblical perspectives. Uh, has anyone got, uh, well, somebody read Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And Micah just, by the way, quotes from Isaiah. Just so you know, Micah 4 is a quote from Isaiah 2. They were friends. <laughs> Micah and Isaiah hung out together. They, they did pizza after the Bible study. 
Who's got Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 to end with? It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. There will be no end to the increase of his government? Is that the vision that most Christians think the Bible has today? Well, um, anyway, hopefully we covered enough to, to get us, you know, obviously that's not very many scriptures when you look at the books of Moses or the books of wisdom or whatever. Uh, I, I always go by the rule, whatever I can fit on the front and back of uh, two pages. But hopefully it's enough to, to help us understand that the kingdom of God is the central theme of the whole Bible. Um, those of you who read a lot of books, one of my favorite books was a, a book called The Kingdom of God by John Bright, written in 1953, that demonstrates that the kingdom of God is the major theme of the whole Bible. Um, if you need a book on the subject. Uh, there's lots of good books on that subject, of oh, course. What's the name of that book?